you've got your Bible with you, turn to John uh, chapter 2. Pick up the reading in, in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I'll hand over to Stafford now. Thanks very much, Ben. Hope you're all well slept and uh, ready for a, a good day together. Um, one of the things I've been saying, saying it last night for those who weren't here, is that as well as working through some passages here in John's Gospel, uh, another of the themes I have in mind is simply this. What would I say to my 25-year-old self? Uh, having come to this stage in my life, looking back, what do I wish I had known at 25 that I didn't really grasp clearly uh, and uh, exactly at that particular stage. Um, and what I was saying last night is, you know, what I would really have appreciated. People did try to tell me, I didn't really get it. But Jesus is the joy giver. Um, don't look for joy in anything or anyone else except Christ. The wine's going to run out on every other party. He's the one who alone can give us wine that will last and joy that will endure in this life and in the life to come. So when we come to this passage today, what's, the, uh, what's my message for my 25-year-old self? Simply this, Jesus is zealous for your holiness. Jesus wants you to be a holy person and he will work in your life in order to bring that holiness about. So let me try to unpack that theme uh, as simply as I can. Uh, you know Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And one of the most popular Christian books published recently is Dean Ortland's wee book entitled Gentle and Lowly. Maybe some of you have read that already. He reflects wonderfully on that aspect of the character of Christ, the heart of Christ. The Bible says he was silent before his accusers. As a lamb is dumb before its shearers. He was quiet, he humbly and silently faced his accusers at the time of his trial and his death. And Jesus Christ said that whenever we are provoked, we should not retaliate uh, by giving like for like, but we should turn the other cheek. 
We should be compassionate and loving. We should be gentle and humble. But here in this event, in John chapter 2, we see Christ very differently. He appears terrible in his anger and in his wrath, literally cracking the whip over people, maybe even cracking the whip on people. There's thunder in his voice. There's lightning in his eyes, which must have been awful to experience as he drove everybody out of the temple. This gentle, meek, lowly, turn-the-other-cheek Lamb of God drove everybody out of the temple with fury and with anger. And we have to ask ourselves, what on earth is going on here? Is Jesus schizophrenic? Is this a different Christ? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus is perfect. But because we don't know any other totally perfect human being, we shouldn't be surprised that we're surprised at this behavior. Because this is the way we know that we're worshiping a real God and a real Christ. You know how it is with a lot of people uh, when you talk to them about God, uh, and I've done this for a number of years in pastoral ministry and say, you know, you're talking to people in their situation and always asking the question, well, what do you think God thinks about your situation? Or what do you think God thinks about the way you're responding to your situation? People come back and say, well, I like to think of God as this, or I prefer to think of God as that. And we are, with all due respect, inclined to respond by saying, well, who cares how you prefer to think about God? Why would you treat God as any different from any other part or aspect of reality? Why would you treat God worse than or different from how you view the world generally? There is the truth. There is the reality of God as he reveals himself in Holy Scripture. And that's what you need to reckon with, not on how you think or what your preferences are with regard to God. Uh, you can think about it like this. Um, imagine you're driving down a road, very bit like the road from uh, Bambridge down into Castlewell, and very twisty, very windy, and you get tired of all the twists and all the turns, and it's actually making you a bit carsick. And you notice that ahead of you, the road bears round to the left, but there's a big tree right in front of you. And do you say to yourself at that point, well, I prefer to think of this road as going straight on. So I don't have to keep on turning the wheel. Do you do that? No, of course you don't. Instead, in spite of your preferences, in spite of what you would like it to be, a nice straight road ahead of you, you submit your preferences to the reality of things as they appear before you. You submit your life to the real shape of the real road so that you don't crash into the tree and die. And the fact that Christianity presents us with reality, we need to recognise that in doing that, it can be rather disturbing. Christianity always bumps up against our personal prejudices, the common and acceptable and cultural understandings of things. Uh, you'll, you'll know that Christianity doesn't try to compete with religions or philosophies or worldviews that are human man-made inventions. It can't compromise, it can't compete with ideas that are made up by sinful people. 
The fact is that whenever you make up your own religion, whenever you create your own God or create your own Christ, when you think of Christ the way you like to think about him, he'll never ever disturb you. He'll never ever bother you. But if you're dealing with something real and true, then the real things, the true things, will always be surprising and disturbing. And you have to submit to the reality of the situation, particularly when it comes to the truth about God and about Christ. It's especially true, I think, with regard to our view of Jesus. Uh, one of the reasons why we don't make more progress in our Christian discipleship is that we have been working with a rather domesticated view of Christ. Now, it's true that we all affirm orthodox beliefs about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. But sometimes, in spite of being doctrinally accurate and precise, we've tended to reduce, we've tended to downsize the glory of Christ. And our understanding of Christ is really only the tip of the iceberg. There are depths to him. There are realities about him that many of us just haven't discovered. Uh, in the, the sequel to the Gentle and Lowly book, uh, Dean Ortland has written another one, maybe you're into it already, called Deeper. Uh, and he asks his uh, readers a number of questions in that, uh, that book. He says, are there vast tracts of who Jesus is, according to biblical revelation, that are unexplored? Have we unintentionally reduced him to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making? Thinking we're looking at the real Jesus? Have we snorkeled in the shallows, thinking we've now hit the bottom of the Pacific? Those are good questions. And I think it's true to say that the doctrine of Christ has been underexplored in our generation. We need to see the living Christ in clearer, sharper focus so that we see him as he truly is, more radiant, more glorious, more majestic than ever before. And then we can build our Christian growth, our Christian discipleship out of an increased and an ever deepening understanding of the Jesus whom we profess to love and follow. We need to let him be the big Christ that he really is. <clears throat> in a lecture given in 1959, C.S. Lewis said this, Gentle Jesus, my elbow. The most striking thing about our Lord is the union of great ferocity with extreme tenderness. Add to this that he's the supreme ironist, dialectician, and occasionally humorist. So go on, you're on the right track now, getting to the real man behind all the plaster dolls that have been substituted for him. This is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb, the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll can't. You remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 3, 8, he speaks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
that you can dig and dig and explore more and more about him and never fully exhaust the truth, never really get to the bottom or understand him completely. And here in John 2, in this passage where Jesus cleanses the temple, is a view of Jesus that many people don't take into account or don't take into consideration. This is the true and the real Christ. And this particular passage tells us a number of things about Jesus that we need to consider very carefully. Most of them are really quite disturbing. They're things that conflict with our prejudices, with our biases. They're things we don't like to hear, especially us modern people. And yet we have to submit to the reality of these truths or else we'll die. The car of our life will soon be wrapped around the tree of reality if we don't. So let me ask just some very simple questions about this passage. Number one, what did Jesus do here? Well, the simple answer is he cleanses the temple. Now, it's important to understand that what he does here uh, has been called simply the cleansing of the temple. The Jews at festival days came and thronged Jerusalem. Some people estimate that the permanent resident population of Jerusalem was only around 80,000 people. But during these major feast days, uh, Jews came from all over the world. And during the feast times, there could have been anything between 300,000 and 500,000 people there. And because they were coming from every, everywhere, they had to come to the temple in order to offer up sacrifices. Then they, they had to bring oxen and goats and sheep, but they couldn't bring those from a foreign land. So what, was hap- what happened was they bought them whenever they arrived in Jerusalem. And because they came from foreign lands, they had to have their currency changed. So this was a, a good and a natural and a right thing for them to do. To buy animals that could be sacrificed, to pay for them, and to have their money exchanged. But what had happened was that the whole process didn't happen any longer out in the street, or even in the steps of the temple, or in the outer areas of the temple. It was going on right in the very middle of the temple, in the temple courts, right in the place where people were offering their sacrifices. And all this commercial activity, all this trade, was happening in the same place where they were professing to offer worship to God, praying and seeking God. And the effect was, as Jesus says right here, you've turned this house into a house of trade. You've turned a place of worship into a marketplace. And the effect was that the whole worship was compromised. It had become totally mechanical. People all around the worshippers were there with the money, calling out, bargaining, all the hustle and bustle that would go along with trade in an eastern marketplace. And in the middle of the situation, the worshipper was trying to offer up his sacrifice, trying to pay something to the priest. Uh, He would look up, recite a prayer, and he would leave pretty quickly. And it was all so completely mechanical, so superficial, and so external. So you can imagine... Uh, perhaps a pneumatic drill or a big digger being used right outside this building as we're having our meeting this morning. Uh, And if you've ever been to the Middle East or to the Far East, imagine trying to worship God in the middle of a bazaar or a marketplace. And you might say, well, I'm going to come in and worship. And you might come in and sit down. You might be able to read a few prayers. You might not actually hear yourself speak, but you go out again pretty quickly. And Jesus saw what was going on and he says this is crazy 
this is wrong. I need to purify the temple of anything that distracts from the pure worship and from an exclusive and a heartfelt focus on the God who's being worshipped. The yearning of Christ's heart explodes in this violent confrontation. The text says that this reaction of Jesus is fueled by his zeal for his father's honour and glory. Uh, When the whole episode is over, verse 17 tells us, the disciples remembered a verse from Psalm 69 that describes Messiah's concern for the glory of God. God's honour is being compromised by what's taking place in the temple. Jesus reveals himself then as the one who is committed to opposing every power, every influence that is really detracting from his father's glory. There's a sense in which the, this incident here at the beginning of John's gospel, like the changing of the water into wine, is also a summary of the whole ministry of Jesus. Jesus is determined in his ministry to bring honour and glory to his father. And it's important to note that the things he threw out were, were good and necessary things. In one sense, there's nothing sinful about what was going on. There were good things that had come into a place where only God had the right to be. Good and necessary things had become too important and had been brought into the heart and centre of the place of worship. That's why they had to be thrown out. Things that were fine in their proper place had usurped the place of God in worship. So Jesus cleanses the temple from anything that would be a distraction from a pure and an exclusive focus on the Lord. Uh, I think it's a very solemn reminder to us that the worship of God is a matter of grave importance. We need to get it right. We need to maintain the proper focus. Contemporary worship, which is often superficial, sloppy, self-indulgent, ill-prepared, theologically inappropriate, will also receive the censure of Christ. Worship that detracts from the glory and the honour of the living God through a concern for performance or self-display on the part of those leading it is not acceptable to the Lord. More than that, it incites Christ's anger. It triggers a strong And a violent response from the Saviour. So Jesus is clearing out the place that should be dedicated to the worship of God. From anything else that will detract from that major focus. Secondly, why is Jesus doing it? The reason he does it is because of the holiness of God. What happened is that the Jewish leaders come to Jesus after he has done this. Notice what it says in verse 18. It wasn't that they said, this is illegal, you can't do this. They don't say anything like that. They say, prove to us that you have the authority to do this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? That means these Jewish leaders knew that Messiah, that when Messiah came, the Messiah would have a passion would have a zeal, would have an energy for the holiness of God. The Messiah would say, God is holy, and all who approach him must be holy as well. And these Jewish folks knew an Old Testament prophecy, one from Malachi chapter 3, 
uh, one of the most famous of all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. When the Messiah, the anointed prince, came, this is what he would do. Uh, And as we approach Christmas, you'll hear this if you listen, as I try to do to the Messiah being played and sung at this season. Then listen very carefully to the words of one of the passages. The Malachi passage is one that Handel uses uh, very, very successfully in the Messiah. Uh, You might want to flip back back to it, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Behold the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. And if I could sing, I would love to sing that section of the Messiah to you because it's a powerful section. He's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He's fire and he's soap. Fuller's soap is really like acid. Uh, It takes out all the stains. And we know what the refiner's fire did. It removed all the impurities, all the dross, so that the metal was purified. Two very simple and clear metaphors for the ministry of Jesus. And the Jewish leaders knew that the Messiah, when he came, would come with this burning intensity, like a refining fire. He would have a passion that God be honoured as holy by anyone who approached him. Now that means, since all the reasons Jesus does this are because of his holiness, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this holiness we're thinking about? What does it mean when Jesus says, no one can come into the presence of my Holy Father unless you approach me in holiness? Uh, You know how it is. Many contemporary people, people in the media and all the rest, have a major problem with the word holy. Uh, I I don't know what you think when I say that word, what picture pops into your mind. Some modern people think of the word holy. They might have a kind of Monty Python definition in mind. Uh, It means to be very rigid. It means to be unapproachable. It means to be hollow-cheeked and humorless. Is that really what the Bible says? Uh, Maybe you've got a very negative and skewed view of holiness so that there's nothing attractive, nothing enticing about it. And we're inclined to think of a holy person as a a monk or a nun or a very narrow-minded kind of person who knows nothing about joy and delighting in the good things of life. But when the Bible talks about the holiness of God, it describes that holiness as being his beauty and his crown. His holiness is what makes him really attractive. And what does it mean for a person or even a thing to be holy? Well, the Bible tells us a number of things that are holy in the Bible. We're told that furniture is holy. Pots and pans are holy. Any pot or pan that has been separated from common use, any vessel or container that had been given for the exclusive use of the tabernacle and for the temple is holy. In other words, anything or anyone who is for God and only for God, set apart for God's exclusive use, is holy. And we ought not to water down or dilute the meaning of the word. You are holy. Whenever you say, Lord, use me any way you want. And we're told that zeal for the holiness of God's house 
was what consumed Jesus. His disciples remembered that it was written, verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. And that means that Christ is a refiner. He is a purifier. He is fire and soap. A refiner in the ancient world had a real passion for the purity of his precious metal, be it gold or silver. So he passes it through the fire because he wants to see it perfectly pure, absolutely beautiful. And in the same way, God is zealous for the purity of my life. And your life. He wants all the impurities removed. Jesus wants us to be as loving and as holy and as perfect and as courageous as God himself. In other words, to be holy means to be a man or a woman of exclusive one focus. One exclusive aim. And Jesus is really saying, if you want to come near my father... All you people who are here worshipping, you're going to have to be purified. And maybe right now in your own heart, there are all kinds of things you're concerned about. You have all kinds of interests, all kinds of pursuits, things you live for, things you're passionate about. But a holy person is very streamlined, very focused. There's just one priority. There's just one aim. There's just one goal. And everything else is jettisoned. Everything else is ditched. So that you can pursue that one goal. And Jesus says you can't come into my presence. You can't come into the presence of my Holy Father. Unless you're holy. That's what it says in Hebrews 12 verse 14. Be holy. Because you know what? Without holiness. No one will see the Lord. So Jesus cleanses the temple. Because he knows that his father is holy and that everybody who worships him must approach him in holiness. You just can't rock up to worship God whatever way you want. So Jesus in this passage resets the standards that must apply as people approach God and worship. So what does Jesus do? Why does he do it? And then my third question is this. What does Jesus mean to teach us by doing this? Uh, one of the things we've been pointing out, said last night about John's gospel, is that Jesus never does any public action, never performs any miracle without trying to teach us things about God or things about the world. And in John's gospel, we often have the explanatory commentary attached to each event and to each miracle so that we can appreciate and learn from what Jesus said or did. So you have the miracle and then you've got the explanation. So what's he trying to teach us here? Well, when the Jews ask him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus, again, as with Mary in the previous incident, answers rather cryptically. I'll give you a sign. I'll tell you why I have the authority to tell people about the holiness of God. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they respond and say, well, what are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this temple. And they thought that Jesus was saying he would destroy it and rebuild it in three days. They thought he was talking about the actual temple building. When Jesus was talking about another temple the temple of his own body, referring to his death and his resurrection after three days. And here's what he's saying, if we can put it very, very simply. 
He says, you believe, you Jewish folks believe you can get into the presence of a holy God through this temple. But I want you to know that from here on, I'm the temple. You believe you can come into the presence of a holy God carrying bloody sacrifices as a way of atoning for your sin. But I tell you, I'm the temple. I'm the priest. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the altar. I'm the bread on the right. I'm the light on the left. I'm the one through whom you can gain access to God. Only through me can you approach a holy God and hope to survive. And at that point, he's telling us an awful lot about the meaning of this world, the meaning of history, and actually the meaning of our own lives. I think anybody here who knows anything about their own heart will be able to respond to this. That everyone who tries to get close to God, anyone who has ever sought to get near to him, doesn't find it to be easy and warm and encouraging. It can be really difficult. Um, Tim Keller makes an interesting comment at one point. He says, uh, it's the reason why many churches are full of people who are a bit cranky and difficult to get on with. I'm sure you've noticed this. Church people can be very awkward and can be very difficult people. More sensitive to criticism than any other people. More reluctant to change than any other group. Uh, It's been my job to work in churches and with church people for many years. I can tell you, dealing with church people is not easy. In every congregation, there are three difficult people. And when, and when one of them dies, there's still three. And, and they're not only more sensitive to criticism, they tend to have more disagreements than other people. Maybe you've noticed that already. I know by your laugh you have. And one reason for it may be this. It's because churches are full of people who are trying very, very hard to get to know God. They're trying to get near to God. They're trying to please God. And trying to get closer to God, they pray. They try to do good. They say, I really want to get near you, Lord. But the nearer they get, the smaller and the more sensitive they feel. The more flawed, the more insecure they feel. The more unworthy they feel. Going to church can actually make you to be rather anxious and guilty. It can put you on edge. Because the closer you get to the holiness of God, the more unholy you feel. So, you know, we might try to get close to God and say, well, I'm going to read my Bible more. And you open up some passages of scripture. It'll be really comforting. It'll be really inspiring to read the Bible. But not all of the Bible brings us comfort. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And we think, well, that's not terribly inspiring, is it? All my heart, soul, mind and strength have to love him 100% of my heart, 100% of my soul, 100% of my attention, 100% of my thoughts, 100% of my desires, 100% of the time. But that's holiness. That's what it means to be utterly and completely and exclusively committed to God. And when we, can, when we read a passage, we can feel so unholy. Uh, Archbishop William Temple used to say, your religion is what you do with your solitude. That means when you don't have anything to think of, when you're alone, nothing's making you think of something, where do your thoughts go? Do they, like metal particles, get drawn back to the magnet of God? 
do you ever find yourself thinking about his, his excellence, his glory? Whatever it is you focus on, whatever you dwell upon, that's your God. Whatever it is you find most effortless to think about, that's what you worship. And we all know that by that standard, we are not holy. If you're wanting to really know God, trying to get near to the real God, the holy God, you'll begin to feel your own sinfulness and your own shortcomings. And what Jesus is saying will only make sense to people who admit that when they try to get close to God, they feel unholy. And some people, as I say, have no problem with that because they immediately do the modern thing. They say, well, I prefer to think of God in some other way. They want to think of God a bit like a Lego set in which they can build God in any form or shape they choose. And if instead of that, if instead you actually treat him the way you treat the rest of reality, you'll have a very different response when you start to come near the God who has revealed himself, the God who is holy, the God who is perfect, the God who is loving, the God who is great, the God who is truthful, the God who is truth and just and righteous, you're going to feel unholy and unacceptable. And here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, I'm the solution to your problem. When you read the Old Testament, you can see there enshrined, graphically portrayed, what we all know intuitively. God is so holy that he's unapproachable. The people couldn't go into the holy of holies, where God's Shekinah glory was present, where his holiness and his presence dwelt. Only once a year did the high priest representing the people go back behind that curtain. After he had spent literally weeks washing himself and purifying himself and carrying the sacrifice. It was dangerous. He could be killed if he went in there unprepared. And so Jesus says, you need me. I'm the priest. I'm the sacrifice. I lay myself down. I'm the temple. I have died in your stead. I have paid everything you owe. I'm the Lamb of God. And as a result, you know what happened when Jesus died, the veil, that curtain separating the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from the people, was torn in two. Matthew tells it it was ripped from the top to the bottom. Why is that? So that those of us who now believe in him can approach God. That holiness of God that was fatal and lethal is now no longer fatal, but his holiness comes out and it can flood our lives and flood our hearts. Jesus says, only if you approach God through me, only if you finally admit who God is and who you are, and only if you come through me, will you be safe. I'm the temple. I'm the way in. You can follow me. You know that incident you'd see sometimes in a movie, like the soldier who says, I'm going to lead the patrol out, but I know there's a mine out there. Uh, but I'll go first anyway. And he goes out first and the steps in the mine, the mine explodes, blows him up. But now the rest can go through the space where he had travelled. The space that he opened up by the sacrifice of his own life. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. 
That's the truth and the message of this passage. So how do we apply it to our own lives? If all this is true, what does it mean? I, I suggest, just in conclusion, it means two things. Two things that should change the way in which we think about ourselves and the way in which we live. Number one, Jesus Christ is a refiner. We're told that he has zeal for the purity of the courts of his father. Peter tells us that if you're born again, if you're united to Christ by faith, you become part of his body. So what is the temple which the New Testament has in view? It is his body. That means when you're born again, it means that into your life comes the spirit of the living God. And it means that you are now the house of God. Your life is part of the temple of God. Now I hope you're beginning to connect the dots here. If it says here that zeal for the purity of God's house consumes Jesus. That the holiness of God's courts is Christ's consuming passion. What is it that now consumes Jesus? What is it that he now lives for? Well, it is the purity and the holiness of our lives. He's committed to making us both holy and happy. And there's nothing else he lives for. Zeal for God's holy temple consumes him. And you and I are the temple of the Holy One of Israel, united to Christ by faith means he's passionate, committed to getting all the impurities and all the dross out of our lives. And how does he do that? Well, that's what Malachi is talking about. He's a refiner. And how does a refiner work? Well, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Some of you may be in the furnace right now. Everybody who has tried to get close to God, everybody who wants to honour God in their lives, will have this experience of being in the furnace. Maybe happening to you right now, or you may just have emerged from a furnace-like experience. Or maybe it's just ahead of you. But if you truly belong to Jesus, you can be sure that Jesus the refiner will be at work in your life in order to purify you. And what does the furnace do? Well, the furnace creates conditions so that the purity of the metal and the impurities can't exist together anymore. The heat makes it impossible for the gold and the impurity to stay together. It pushes them in different directions. So a furnace or a finer's fire is a condition, a situation in which your love for other things and your love for God can no longer live together. A furnace is a place where you're forced to choose. And by choosing love for God, you become holier, more perfect, more loving, wiser, more courageous, nobler. You become more like Jesus. Uh, think of it like this. You've got a really good job, a really nice paying job, but now your boss is requiring you to do things that is really going to mean a compromise of your conscience for you. And you've got to choose. Up until now, 
your love for your career, your love for your good salary, your love for God have lived together. There's been no choice to make. But now the heat's on. And you begin to realise, if I begin to obey God, I'm going to put my job in jeopardy. Where in this job market am I going to find a job that pays like this one? What's happening there? You're in the furnace. And for the first time, you have to choose between your love of comfort and of money and job security and your love for Jesus. Choose this day whom you will serve. If you choose rightly, then the dross will be burnt away. Or here's another possibility. You're in a really great relationship with somebody who looks like good spouse material. But this other person is asking you to compromise on a couple of very key issues. And you think, if I obey God, it's going to put this entire relationship in jeopardy. So you have to choose. You have to choose between your love and your attraction for this person, for the possibility of a family, your longing for a fulfilling relationship, and your love for God. The heat is on. What are you going to do? Or here's another one. Uh, Something you have wanted all your life looks like it's not going to happen. And you have a choice. Up until now, you felt fairly competent to run your own life. You felt God has been pretty competent to run your life as well. But things don't seem to be working out the way you would like. And now you have a choice. Are you going to be bitter? Or are you going to submit to God and say, Lord, I submit gladly to your will for my life. If this is the way you want to run my life, then that's just fine with me. And for the first time, you have to choose between confidence in your own competence to run your life, your own agenda, or to follow his agenda. Which one's it going to be? I I suspect in a group like this, some of you are in the furnace right now, or you're about to go into it. And you're being pushed so that the impurity, the false self, And the true self in you can be pulled apart. Jesus is not putting you in the furnace in order to cook you. He's putting you in the furnace in order to refine you. You're not a goose. You're gold. You're silver. You're a diamond. You're very precious to him. And he's the jeweler. And he looks at you and he loves you and he says, I don't want to make you miserable. You're in the furnace for your joy, not your misery. And I can't wait to see you bright and shining as a diamond, cut and polished and placed beautifully in your setting. Jesus says, I'm consumed with zeal for your holiness and for your happiness. I'm consumed with zeal for what you can be and for the beauty of what you can be. Choose me when you're in that furnace. And I'll guarantee to you the only thing that will drop off, the only thing that will fall away, is not what you think. That the thing you think was absolutely essential was actually a tumour. The thing you thought you couldn't do without was actually a malignant growth. You're going through the furnace for your benefit and for your spiritual health. 
And the key question for you is simply this. Will you let Christ be your refiner? Second thing in conclusion is this. Jesus Christ must be not only your refiner, he must be your owner. You see, there's a a difference between the way he acted when he was at the wedding in Cana, at the feast, and the way he acts here. At the wedding feast, somebody had a problem. Jesus says, okay, I'll try to fix it. And that's the way we like it, isn't it? But here's the difference. When he was at Cana, he was a guest in the house. But here he is the host. He actually owns this house. Uh, if you're the guest in somebody's, room, uh, somebody's home, you don't make too many requests. If you go to stay with somebody, they say, well, here's your guest room. Is there anything I can get? You say, well, yes. I was wondering, could you knock out that wall for me, please? And could you put on a wee extension as well? Would that be all right? You don't do that. You're a guest. But if you're the host, if you own the house, you can make the changes. You move things around. You change things. You knock down walls. You build new ones. How do you know whether Jesus Christ is really in your life, actually dwelling in your life? Where Jesus Christ lives, that's what he owns. How do you know if you're really a temple in the Holy Spirit? If you have Jesus Christ in your life as a guest, if you're saying, well, I would like him around so that he can do some things for me, then he won't come in. He doesn't come in that way. He comes to live. And when he comes to live, it means it's his house. He's the owner. And the way you can tell whether you're actually giving yourself to him and letting him be your owner is if he's putting his finger on things. If he says, I want this gone, this is too important, it's going to have to move out. The only way you know if he's in your life as Lord as he really is, if you can point to those things that he's been identifying, that he's been exposing, that he's been putting his finger on recently. And you can say, you know what? He put his finger on that a year ago. And he exposed that and that's now gone. Then you can know that he really dwells in you and really dwells with you. Otherwise, you've got a God of your own creation. Otherwise, you've got a God of your own making. Do you know that the only alternative to saying, God, use me, rather than saying, God, use me, is to say to God, God, I want to use you. The only alternative to holiness is unholiness. The only alternative to saying, Lord, I give you myself, my heart owns none before you, I'm at your disposal, is to say, well, Lord, I want you in my life, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, but not this and not that. You can go this far, but you don't go any further. Otherwise, our relationship is negotiated. And in that case, you have no relationship with Christ. There's a hymn we used to sing more often than we do now, but when we sang it, especially on an occasion of an ordination or a dedication service, it used to really powerfully strike me. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt, and when, and where, until thy blessed face I see, thy rest, thy joy, thy glory share. Here's the irony. If there's anybody here who says, now I see what I have to do, 
but I'm scared to give myself to Jesus that way. The irony is, until you say, Lord, use me, you're not really your own. Because the irony is, when you say, Lord, use me, until you do that, your life is actually being controlled by all these other things that you really want so badly. They're controlling your life. They're using you, not Christ. But if you say, Lord, use me, he will never use you as a thing. Instead, he will give you his glory. If you say, Lord, I give myself to you, what does God say? Great. Can't wait to make you sweat. Can't, make, can't wait to make you feel uncomfortable. Not at all. When you say, Lord, I give myself to you, he says, find my child. Now I give myself to you. So come on. Let him be your owner. Let him be your refiner. Let's pray. Lord, we see Jesus acting so terribly and yet so clearly at the temple because zeal for your honour and for your holiness consumes him. And Lord, you have a similar zeal for the holiness of my life and the lives of my sisters and brothers here. Dear Lord, help us just to give ourselves to you. To know that what you do in our lives in the furnace when the heat is on is not to make us miserable, but actually so that we can shine brightly. So that all the things that are controlling us and mastering us can be burnt away. And so that you can indeed be the owner and the refiner of our hearts. Lord, help us by your grace. We look to you. Thank you for being so patient with us, Lord. Thank you for being so loving and so caring. Lord, we're slow learners in your school. And we need to be taught this lesson again and again. So, Lord, please be patient with us. And give us such grace that we can respond to the overtures and the wooings of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.